Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast where we talk about hidden history, de-political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the odd man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. We're here to discuss what is going to be Tony's, his essays and research on the order. Please tell us about the order and how you came to discover it exists. Well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. The Order is truly a secret society. It was founded in the United States at Yale University in 1833. It has continued and exists down to the present day. Each year, the Order takes in 15 men, senior students from Yale University. Never more than 15, only once has it been less than 15. In 1946, they took in, I think, 10 rather than 15 members. So what we have is a secret society which, over the last 150 years, has accumulated about 2,500 members, of whom perhaps 500 are alive today. Of this 500, perhaps 100 are actively in pursuit of the objectives of the order. It's not another college fraternal society. Yale University is the only university in the United States, or indeed the world, which has senior societies. These are societies where the 15 are selected in the junior year and actually are initiated at the beginning of the senior year. They stay on campus only one year as members. They are called knights when they graduate. They leave the university, they go out into the world, then they're known as patriarchs. So at any one time, you only have 15 knights in existence, and um, for the rest of their lives, they're known as patriarchs. And they work uh, during their lifetime, or a number do, uh, towards the ends of the order. They are pretty much guaranteed success, certainly they're guaranteed financial success. And in my reading of the material I have, I uh, infer 
that so long as they go along with the purposes of the order, so long as they uh, gear their careers and their lives towards certain ends, then they are guaranteed success. How did I come to this knowledge? Well, up to six months ago, I denied that there was a conspiracy because, frankly, I couldn't prove one. I suspected a conspiracy, but I couldn't prove there was one until six months ago. Well, a little before six months ago, um, I received the catalogue, which is the membership list of the society, all the way back to 1833, and I received some of their internal documents, enough for me to put together the way they correspond with each other, the um, operations within the order, to some extent their problems, and to some extent their objectives. What's up, oddities, freaks and geeks, and all you other fine listeners out there? Thank you once again for hanging out with me, the odd man, and checking out the show. I appreciate you taking your time, as always. And this week, we're going to be talking about another classic conspiracy, the Order of Skull and Bones. A lot of people have done shows on this, but as you veteran listeners know, I am trying to go through some of the classic conspiracies and kind of dig a little bit deeper and see what we can find. Most of my work tonight is going to be based on the work of Anthony C. Sutton and also a book by Chris Milligan, which was also inspired by Sutton and others, on the Skull and Bones. Since our story starts at Yale College, I thought it might be good to kind of go over how Yale began the college itself, I mean. And Chris Milligan says that the story begins at Yale where the three threads of American social history, espionage, drug smuggling, and secret societies, intertwine into one. A guy by the name of Elihu Yale was born near Boston, educated in London, imagine that, and served with the British East India Company, famous for the opium trade. Yale eventually became governor of Fort St. George, Madras, in India, in the year 1687. He amassed a great fortune from the trade and returned to England in 1699. Yale became known as a philanthropist. Upon receiving a request from the Collegiate School in Connecticut, he sent a donation and a gift of books. After subsequent bequests, Cotton Mather suggested the school be named Yale College, in the year 1718. A statue of Nathan Hale stands on old campus at Yale University. A copy of that statue stands in front of the CIA's headquarters in Langley, Virginia. Yet another stands in front of the Phillips Academy in Andover, Mass, where George H.W. Bush went to prep school and joined his first secret society at the age of 12. Who is Nathan Hale? Nathan Hale, along with three other Yale graduates, were members of the Culper Ring, one of America's first intelligence operations established by George Washington. It was successful throughout the Revolutionary War. Nathan was the only operative to be ferreted out by the British, and after speaking his famous regrets, he was hanged in the year 1776. Ever since the founding of the Republic, the relationship between Yale and the intelligence community has been unique. In 1823, Samuel Russell established Russell and Company for the purpose of acquiring opium in Turkey and smuggling it to China. Russell and Company merged with the Perkins Syndicate 
in Boston in 1830 and became the primary American opium smuggler. Many of the great American and European fortunes were built on the China opium trade. One of Russell and Company's chief operations in Canton was Warren Delano Jr., grandfather of FDR. Other Russell partners included John Cleve Green, who financed Princeton, Abiel Lowe, who financed the construction of Columbia, Joseph Coolidge, and the Perkins, Sturgis, and Forbes families. Coolidge's son organized the United Fruit Company, and his grandson Archibald C. Coolidge was a co-founder of the Council on Foreign Relations. William Huntington Russell, Samuel's cousin, studied in German from 1831 to 1832. Germany was a hotbed of new ideas at the time. The scientific method was being applied to all forms of human endeavor. Prussia, which blamed the defeat of its forces by Napoleon in 1806 on soldiers only thinking about themselves in the stress of battle, took the principles set forth by John Locke and Jean Rousseau and created a new educational system. Johann Wolfgang Fichte, in his address to the German people, declared that the children would be taken over by the state and told what to think and how to think it. George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel took over Fichte's chair at the University of Berlin in 1817 and was a professor there until his death in 1831. Hegel was the culmination of the German idealistic philosophy school of Immanuel Kant. To Hegel, our world is a world of reason. The state is absolute reason, and the citizen can only become free by worship and obedience to the state. Hegel called the state the march of God in the world, and the final end. This final end, Hegel said, has supreme right against the individual, whose supreme duty is to be a member of the state. Both fascism and communism have their philosophical roots in Hegelianism. Hegelian philosophy was very much in vogue during William Russell's time in Germany. And that brings us to the founding of the Skull and Bones. Officially, they were started in the year 1833. Imagine that. But in the year before, in 1832, a guy named William Huntington Russell was studying in Germany. And he came over to Yale the following year, and he and Alfonso Taft, who was the father of President Taft, allegedly started the Order of Skull and Bones at Yale. Now, as we've talked about in the past, a lot of these secret societies seem to originate in Germany, in that area. The Rosicrucians, I believe, the Order of the Golden Dawn, and others. The most famous, probably, is the Illuminati, the Bavarian Illuminati, the original Illuminati. And they also called themselves the Order of the Illuminati. So a lot of people think that possibly Skull and Bones was an offshoot of the Illuminati coming from Germany. And it would make sense. Now, many people have seen the logo of the Skull and Bones Society, and that is, of course, the classic Skull and Bones. You've probably also seen the 322, the numbers 322, right there on the logo. Well, what does that symbolize? Many people ask. We don't know 100% for sure, but the official story supposedly was 
William Russell imported the society from Germany, and so it has been argued that the 322 stands for 32 from the year 1832, which he was in Germany. And it was the second chapter of this German organization, possibly the Illuminati. Also, it says there could be a chapter 320 and a chapter 321. They may exist somewhere, and 323 is the designation of a room within the Skull and Bones Temple at Yale. Yeah, they have this very strange headquarters there that looks like a stone, kind of like a giant coffin almost, or a tomb as they call it. Another interpretation is that the order descended from a Greek fraternal society dating back to Demosthenes in 322 BC. Sutton says this has perhaps some credibility because Bones' records are dated back adding 322 to the current year, i.e. records originating in 1950 are dated Anno Demosthenes 2272. Now, I did see on a website that the third chapter of Genesis, verse 22, says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And that would go right back to man becoming God in apotheosis. Uh, I did see also, it may not have anything to do with it, but Aristotle died in 322 B.C. Now you ask, well, what makes the Order of the Skull and Bones any different from any other college fraternity? In 1856, it was incorporated as the Russell Trust. That's very important. And so they have a bit more power than a regular fraternity. Another thing that makes them interesting is it's a senior year only fraternity whose members are chosen in their junior year. At the time of Anthony C. Sutton's book, there were only two other fraternities that were senior year only fraternities, and they were both also at Yale, and that is Scroll and Key and Wolf's Head. Sutton also points out the fact that they were an exclusive seniors only club and that showed that they were basically trying to set these guys up for prominent positions of power in government and the private sector. And I think that's certainly true, as many of them went on to be big shots. And it's still around. No, don't get me wrong. It's still very powerful. Its membership list is private, and that makes it different. It only accepts 15 new men per year, and that's it. The Russell Trust a.k.a. the Skull and Bones, they own an exclusive retreat on Deer Island on the St. Louis River, exclusively for patriarchs only, that is, the elder members of the society. One kind of thinks back to Epstein Island, but maybe not that remote. The patriarchs of the order are called knights, and you have the Knights of Malta, of course. You have the Scottish Rite Knight of Kadosh, which I believe the skull and bones symbolism is incorporated in that particular degree, as well as a couple other degrees in both the Scottish Rite and also the York Rite. And if you read the Freemason sites, they claim that the skull and bones, that symbology is basically just to remind the initiate that 
his life is not eternal here on earth and that he only has a finite amount of days and they could be any time. His death could be any time. Supposedly, they refer to outsiders as vandals or Gentiles, which I think is pretty interesting. Rosenbaum's curiosity about skull and bones was permanently piqued when, as a classmate of George W. Bush, he lived right next to the tomb, the group's heavily fortified home. From their perch, Rosenbaum and his cohorts taped the tomb's courtyard. What they captured, they say, was initiates, known as neophytes, being forced to kiss a skull, then members performing a mock killing. It may look like your average fraternity nonsense, but Rosenbaum says it's not. Even though it may seem silly to us, it seems to mean something to them, and you can't argue with the success of Skull and Bones. True. Famous alums include senators, John Kerry and John Chafee, to name two, cabinet secretaries, such as Averill Harriman, and three presidents, William Taft, George Bush, and George W. Bush, who's been reluctant to talk about Skull and Bones. Does it still exist? I mean, the thing is so secret, I'm not even sure it still exists. Still, Rosenbaum says the tape is a valuable artifact, an extremely rare view into the secret society that groomed the American ruling class for generations. Dan Harris, ABC News, New York. Now let's look at the Skull and Bones initiation ceremony according to Tex Mars. We take that with a grain of salt, but I tell you, his book Dark Majesty is a heck of a read. He says, what happens when a person is inducted into the Skull and Bones Society? What I'm going to describe to you is the initiation ceremony for all new bonesmen and is exactly what George Bush and many other prominent political media and financial leaders have gone through. First, as part of this initiation ritual, the new man is placed into a coffin. He is then carried into the central part of the tomb, which is the Skull and Bones headquarters. The other members of the society, dressed in bizarre occultic costumes and wearing masks or hoods, stand solemnly around the coffin, chanting and moaning, invoking the powers. They are chanting evidently for familiar spirits to facilitate the rebirth of the candidate. The rebirth is said to transform the candidate from ordinary human status into a superman or a godlike being. The individual next is removed from this coffin and given a robe with certain Masonic-like symbols on the robe. Evidently, in at least some of the initiation ceremonies, one of these symbols is the Maltese cross with eight points. Eight is the occultic number of new beginnings. Finally, a bone with the man's new name on it is tossed into a bone heap. Initiates have also commonly taken part in a ritual in which they plunge naked into a mud pile. The purpose is that the initiate takes on filth and then is cleansed and purified. The initiation rite is a throwback to Masonic rituals, particularly the ritual for the 30th degree, and is modeled after similar rituals conducted in ages past by the mystery religions of the Greeks, Romans, Babylonians, and Egyptians. Its purpose is occultic. The new member of Skull and Bones supposedly dies to the world and is born again into the order. The order is considered a world unto itself. The man has a new name and 14 new blood brothers. 
Moreover, he joins an elite few numbering into the hundreds, chosen from among the 5.5 billion inhabitants of planet Earth. There is not only this elitist element, but also a spiritual dimension to the initiation ceremony. This is a counterfeit of the Christian act of being born again. Jesus Christ said in John 3.3, you must be born again. As a Christian, a person is not reborn as a result of some arcane and sinister initiation ceremony with bones and skulls and coffins and mud piles. He or she is reborn through the faith in the precious and redeeming name of Jesus Christ. Elder members of the society during the ceremony are assembled in black hooded robes with lit candles, and the member shares his life story as he lays in the coffin. He is required to recount and confess his sexual experiences. He is bonded and soul-linked with other members of the society. They then know about his innermost secrets, everything he has done of a wicked nature. He confesses and tells it all right from the coffin. In 1873, the tomb was actually broken into, and in the Yale School newspaper was written, The society is not just obnoxious and arrogant. It fancies itself superior. Moreover, the students suggested that the true goal of its membership was to endeavor to rule in all things and clutch tightly its power. Now, getting back to the Russell Trust, which oversees the financial issues of Skull and Bones, this is what text says. At Yale, then, we have the secret society in which only 15 students are introduced each year. They live in a building, the tomb, that resembles a combination library and mausoleum and are cared for by paid servants, cooks, and attendants. The Russell Trust is endowed by $54 million in alumni grants. Imagine $54 million for the welfare of these 15 pampered initiates. These 15 students are obviously chosen special people. They are called knights while they are at the university, but when they graduate, they are called patriarchs of the order. It has been the case since 1832. The patriarchs, also calling themselves bonesmen, continue to meet together frequently. The new graduates are also mentored by older patriarchs and are rewarded with jobs, loans, grants, and favor treatment throughout their entire lives. Once a bonesman, it is said, always a bonesman. Now, Mars also says that Novus Ordo Seclorum, which roughly translates to the New World Order, is also Yale's motto. But if so, I uh, have never heard that before and I haven't checked into it. Probably should have done that before I done this show, right? Now, remember when I mentioned before that a lot of people say that the number 322 in the Bones logo stands for Demosthenes in his year of death, which was 322 BC. Demosthenes was a politician, a leader, and a patriot of Greece and was extremely depressed. He and others had instigated an uprising against Philip, but their efforts had failed. Therefore, Demosthenes committed suicide by poison. That's according to Mars. He says, Today, a statue of Demosthenes stands in the Vatican in St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. He asks, could there be a connection of the skull and bones with the Catholic Church? Possibly. In any case, 
What we have here is a situation in which the historical legend of the death of Demosthenes seems to have been the inspiration for the founding of the Skull and Bones, chapter 322. It could be that what the Order of Skull and Bones is saying is that its members prefer death to giving up freedom and liberty, so much so that they would rather be dead or poisoned than not to have this freedom, this liberty. It is significant for us to understand that for other secret societies, words such as freedom and liberty have no meaning as we know them, nor does the word democracy. Boy, isn't that the truth. And on the following page, he shows a picture of one of Kaiser Wilhelm's field marshals in his black uniform with the death's headpiece, which is the skull and bones, on his hat, which they call a busby. You guys can look that up if you'd like. Now, there's so many avenues that I could have taken with this, but I can't cover an entire book or books in one show. And I would just urge you guys to check out Skull and Bones yourselves. Look into it. Find some good articles. Get some good books. I'll list these books that I've talked about in my show notes. And decide for yourselves what you think. I do believe that they are a part of the global network uh, maybe the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians, the Order of the Golden Dawn, all these different secret societies, uh, the Skull and Bones, Wolf's Head, Scroll and Key, uh, get on up to the Council on Foreign Relations, Chatham House, Pilgrim Society, maybe even the Fabians, they may work into it somehow. But there's a lot of connections to these different organizations, and there's no questioning that. And I think that... Uh, it's just like the Masons, especially in the higher degrees, if these guys go into public or private positions of power, well, they have sworn allegiance, blood oaths to their brothers. So that really creates this secretive society there, the secretive network that helps one another out through their entire lives. And if you do have a position of power, then obviously that means a lot. And that is why I believe that they form these groups so they can control policies, they can get their guys into positions that they want them into, and just keep enriching their bloodlines. And it's pretty simple, really, when you think about it. I think that's exactly why they do this. And, you know, of course, one thing that they seem to have in common is this kind of new age kind of belief that man can become God and uh, through knowledge you can be saved, or through knowledge you are enlightened and you can rule over your fellow man. And now a lot of New Age people will say, no, that's not what we believe. We think that everyone will be enlightened and become their own gods and will all be equal and all that good stuff. But we see this other side to it when we really study these things deeply and see what some of these members have done with their power over time. Now this is the book, An Introduction to the Order, by Anthony C. Sutton. It has a skull and bones on the front and 322. The 322 is an identification. The um, order has a temple on the Yale campus. A Was temple? It? A temple, yes. It's a building maybe this 50, 60 feet by 40 feet, maybe 40 feet high. There's no windows, two big steel doors. We know what the temple looks like because back in 1880s, 
uh, a number of Yale students became a little unhappy about what was going on inside this temple. All they, when they went by it at midnight, sometimes they heard strange noises and all kinds of rumors on the Yale campus as to what this might be. There was a break-in. I call it a Yale gate. Um, <laughs> there, was a, there was a break-in to the temple, and the students who broke in uh, cataloged what they found, and they made a, um, a drawing, a design of the interior of the temple. And uh, three of the rooms are numbered. One is 322, one is 323, and one is 324. Uh, 322 is also, I suspect, the chapter number. Uh, and also in correspondence between members, they conclude their correspondence where you and I would conclude yours truly or yours sincerely. They conclude yours in 322. Why 322? There are several theories for this. One is that the order originated with Demosthenes, the Greek, in 322 BC. That's one theory. Another one is that it stems from the founding date in the United States, which was 1832. So really we have um, the last two numbers, 32, the second chapter of founded in 1832. Uh, we also know that, for, so far as the order is concerned, we are presently in period one. Period one began in 1801. I don't know when it ends. I don't know when period three will begin. Period one logically must be sometime before 1801. The skull and crossbones are prominent in their ceremonies, initiation ceremonies. This is a symbol of death. Now, why would they take a symbol of death? Yes, from what I understand, when a new member is initiated, that would be in the senior year at Yale, he's placed within a coffin. Oh, my. And uh, <laughs> now we only know this from the Yale Gate papers. From the photographs we have of members inside the temple, uh, many of these photographs are the 15 sitting around a table, and they have this skull and the crossbones sitting on the table in front of them. It is the symbol of death, and it has been called the Brotherhood of Death, and I think it... it probably more adequately should be called the Brotherhood of Death. Now you can hear a lot of surnames from the Skull and Bones. Quite a few were in Fritz Springmeier's 13 Bloodlines of the Illuminati. Uh, names, of course, that we've mentioned, Russell and Taft, also Harriman, Whitney, Lord, Bush, Carey, Forbes, Rockefeller, Harriman, Pillsbury, Stimson, and Perkins, and we'll go over many more as well. You know, William Averill Harriman inherited the railroad line from his father, and he was also the governor of New York. And uh, Prescott Bush, the father of George H.W. Bush, grandfather of George W. Skull and Bones as well, worked for Harriman through the Union Bank, and they actually helped fund the Nazis, and that's very well known. And uh, it was found out that this Union Bank was basically committing an act of treason, and it was shut down, but barely even mentioned by the media at all. And Prescott Bush wasn't punished. Uh, w. Everell Harriman was not punished. In fact, Prescott went on to be a senator of Connecticut. So it just goes to show that the order and this global network that I think they're a part of takes care of their own. Now, member Daniel Coit Gilman was a very influential early member. He was the first president of the Carnegie Institute, 
the first president of Johns Hopkins University, and he had barely any background that would lend him the experience he needed to be the president of Johns Hopkins, but he had the connections. He was on the scene for the founding of the Peabody Institute, the Slater, and the Russell Sage Foundations. These tax-exempt foundations, of course, are the way that these very wealthy elites funnel money and, of course, get tax-exempt status and get a lot of sway over governments and policies. Another prominent member was McGeorge Bundy, and he was the president of the Ford Foundation from 1966 to 1979. William Bundy, I believe, was his brother and was in the CIA for over a decade. Uh, William S. Coffin was another member. He spent three years in the CIA, oddly enough, before becoming an anti-war activist, an anti-Vietnam activist. Now, Henry Stimson was another member that went on to have a lot of power in his day. He was the Secretary of War, appointed by Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1940. In 45, he was Truman's Secretary of War. He was the guy who recommended bombing Japan with the atomic bomb. Stimson was appointed to offices by every president except Harding, from 1911 to 1946. Taft, Wilson, Coolidge, Hoover, Roosevelt, and Truman all appointed Stimson. Stimson used his office to advance the careers of fellow members of the order, in particular, Harvey Hollister Bundy and his son, McGeorge Bundy. Yeah, like I said, the Bundys were a part of Fritz Springmeier's Bloodlines of the Illuminati. Robert Lovett, another Skull and Bones man, he was appointed as Secretary of Defense. Andrew Dixon White was the first president of Cornell, another Bonesman. Among academic associations, according to Sutton, the American Historical Association and that they used to control a lot of the narrative that has been written about them and about the entire global economic order. Also, the American Economic Association, the American Chemical Society, and the American Psychological Association. They were all started by members of the order or very close men to the order. Archibald MacLeish wrote the UNESCO Constitution for Julian Huxley and the UN. Winston Lord was chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations. He was the ambassador to China. He was also the assistant U.S. Secretary of State. Bonesman Jeremiah Wadsworth set up the Peace Research Institute. In 63, this was merged to become the Institute for Policy Studies. He started that along with Marcus Rashkin. It was also funded by the Rockefellers and other big businesses. And we'll get into that eventually one of these days and do a show on it. Frederick Wallace Smith was the founder of FedEx. Victor Ash was the Tennessee state senator and representative, mayor of Knoxville, 
and the U.S. ambassador to Poland. You're noticing several of these guys are ambassadors, and we learned about the Pilgrim Society, that they love to get these ambassadors to other countries. And I think that that is actually their man to run these dirty deals in other countries. When they appoint these ambassadors, they get these guys who are in these orders and in these clubs to do exactly what they want and say. We also have William Henry Draper III. He was the chair of the United Nations Development Program and Export-Import Bank of the United States. Ralph Delahaye Payne Jr. was the editor and publisher of Fortune magazine. Victor William Henningsen Jr., president of Henningsen Foods, Inc. Thomas Henry Guinsberg was the president of Viking Press. Evan G. Galbraith was the U.S. ambassador to France a managing director of Morgan Stanley. Franklin McVeigh, he was the U.S. Secretary of Treasury under fellow bonesman William Howard Taft. Percy Rockefeller, he was the owner, I believe, of White Shoes, a New York lawyer, oil man, gun dealer, and, of course, part of the Rockefeller Fund. H.A. Hines II was the ketchup heir and father of future senator, and I suppose that was the father or grandfather. That would be father, I guess, of Teresa Hines Carey, John Carey's wife. Dana Milbank was, class of 1990, one of the more recent ones, uh, Washington Post reporter and former White House correspondent. Of course, we mentioned John Kerry, Senator John Kerry, who is a part of the CFR, and he also works under the Biden administration right now. Uh, Steve Mnuchin was Trump's secretary. Uh, Potter Stewart started his career as a journalist, but ended up being a Supreme Court judge. Uh, Sutton says, as far as the law goes, the major establishment law firms in New York were saturated with the order. In particular, Lord Day and Lord, dominated by the Lord family already discussed, he says. Also Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett, especially the Thatcher family. David, Polk, and Wardwell, and DiBiase, Plimpton, and the Rockefeller family law firm. Of course, Henry Luce of Time Life was a member of the order and also, of course, a prominent CFR member. Uh, William F. Buckley Jr. of the National Review was a skull and bonesman. His son was as well, Alfred Cowles. Cowles was the president of Cowles Communication, and uh, he owned the Des Moines Register, the Minneapolis Star. Uh, Emmert Bates of Lytton Educational Systems, plus Richard Eli Danielson of Atlantic Monthly. I assume that is connected to the Atlantic newspaper, which I don't know if it's still a newspaper, but it's a you know, it's a socialist rag, a corporate socialist rag, I would say. And they have quite a presence online. Russell Wheeler Davenport of Fortune Magazine. John Chipman Farrar of Farrar Strauss. They were publishers. The most prestigious award in journalism is the Neiman Fellowship at Harvard University. Over 300 were granted from 37 to 68. And the first director of the Neiman Fund was Skull and Bonesman Archibald McLeish. See, the winners write the history. They control the narrative. They control who gets appointed to what. 
And that's why these fraternities are extremely important. But Skull and Bones being the main one, I would say, is the most important. And we'll learn what a hold they've had over Yale in particular. This phenomenon of the order as the first on the scene is found especially among foundations, as Sutton says. It says the uh, order keeps a continuing presence among foundation trustees. And when he's talking about foundations, he's talking about, of course, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Endowment, Ford Foundation. Of course, we got the Gates Foundation, the McCain Foundation, the Clinton Foundation, numerous foundations nowadays where they're laundering money and getting tax-exempt status and, of course, getting a lot of influence. So it says they did more, and they do more than just be first where money is concerned. They stay around to keep an eye on expenditures. The first president of the Carnegie Foundation, as we mentioned earlier, was Bonesman Daniel Coit Gilman. But other members have been on the Carnegie board. Gilman was on the scene for the founding of the Peabody, Slater, and Russell Sage Foundations. McGeorge Bundy, as we mentioned, was president of the Ford Foundation. The first chairman of an influential but almost unknown organization established in 1910, and I never heard of this, was also a member of the order. The Theodore Marburg Foundation, the American Society for the Judicial Settlement of International Disputes. But Marburg was only president. The first chairman was William Howard Taft. The society was the forerunner of the League to Enforce the Peace, which developed into the League of Nations concept and ultimately into the United Nations. See, everything is connected into history, and they're all connected to these groups, whether you go from the Skull and Bones to the Council on Foreign Relations, the Pilgrim Society, or other foundations. Sutton said that uh, in the United Nations... They had Archibald McLeish, who was the brains behind the Constitution of UNESCO. The first person on the scene in this phenomenon in think tanks was James Jeremiah Wadsworth, another Skull and Bonesman. And he talks about the Institute for Policy Studies along with fellow Bonesman Marcus Rashkin, who had been a National Security Council aide to McGeorge Bundy, another member of the order. The members have been in the CFR uh, more recently, of course, we've had President Bush, who was a Skull and Bonesman, and that was my introduction to Skull and Bones when, you know, there was a little bit of talk back then about he and Kerry both being Bonesmen and both running for president at the exact same time. Now, Blackstone's Stephen A. Swartzman of the Swartzman Scholarships, also a Skull and Bonesman. Austin Goolsby was the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under Obama. Skull and Bonesman. Oddly enough, actor Paul Giamatti, Skull and Bonesman. That doesn't mean that every single Skull and Bonesman is inherently evil. But if you see the ones that stay close to the order and are appointed to these very influential positions of power, you can bet that their membership to the society is a big freaking deal. I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, but Amos Pinshot was one of the founders of the ACLU. His brother Gifford, also a bonesman, is considered a founder of the environmental movement. He served as the fourth chief of the U.S. Division of Forestry and as the first head of the United States Forest Service and as the 28th governor of Pennsylvania. 
I think this is very important when Sutton is describing how these guys have controlled the historical narrative. There is an establishment history, an official history, which dominates history textbooks, trade publishing, the media, and library shelves. The official line always assumes that events such as wars, revolutions, scandals, assassinations, and the like are more or less just random, unconnected events. By definition, events can never be the result of conspiracy. They can never result from a premeditated planned group action. Woe betide any book or author that falls outside the official guidelines. Foundation support is not there. Publishers get cold feet. Distribution is hit and miss, or non-existent. Just to ensure the official line dominates, in 1946, the Rockefeller Foundation allotted 139000 for an official history of World War II. This to avoid a repeat of debunking history books which embarrassed the establishment after World War I. But a reader will be interested to know that the order had great foresight back in the 80s to create both the aforementioned American Historical Association and the American Economic Association. Most economists were then historians rather than analysts under their terms with their people and their objectives. Andrew Dixon White was a member of the order and the first president of the American Historical Association. Sorry that I'm repeating a few things, but I think that it's actually a good thing because we forget these things so quickly. Another source here of the study of the ruling class, it says that John Sherman Cooper was a U.S. senator, skull and bonesman. All these guys will be skull and bonesmen that I'm about to mention. Uh, Charles Merville Spofford was a lawyer and NATO official. James Jeremiah Wadsworth was a diplomat and a U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Uh, John Rockefeller Prentice was a lawyer and cattle breeder. Granger Kent Costikian was a partner of Brown Brothers Harriman. Lewis Abbott Lapham, a banking and shipping executive. Lyman Spitzer, theoretical physicist and namesake of the NASA Spitzer Space Telescope. Uh, let's see here. Jonathan Brewster Bingham, representative of New York. William H. Oreck Jr., federal judge. Um, Potter Stewart, I think we mentioned him. He was a Supreme Court justice. J. Richardson Dilworth, Rockefeller family lawyer. William Welch Kellogg a climatologist and associate director for the National Center for Atmospheric Research. It also says James L. Buckley, U.S. Senator, New York, was the brother of William F. Buckley, Jr., and was a member. And we just said earlier that Buckley and his son were members. So a lot of this stuff, uh, the historian of the Secretary of the Air Force, Walter Hoops II, another member, um, John Chafee, U.S. Senator and Secretary of the Navy and Governor of Rhode Island, father of Lincoln Chafee. Charles S. Whitehouse, CIA agent, U.S. Ambassador to Laos and Thailand. So, that's a ton, there's a ton more. But uh, you see how important these guys have been. And we're just getting started here. If you can have a very secret society only for senior members who are about to graduate and have them placed in positions of power 
and no doubt have sworn blood oaths to always uphold a brother and always do business with a brother, then that is very powerful. And if you figure in the blackmail issue, a lot of people say they have to have some kind of blackmail on one another. So these guys will be loyal no matter what. But uh, I think it's interesting to note that these guys seem to always appoint a brother in some position of power if they're able to. And that's not necessarily a terrible thing, but a lot of these guys haven't been great people. They've been connected to this globalist group that we talk about all the time under different names. And uh, who knows if the skull and bones, how high up they go. I expect because it is a smaller group, they only admit 15 per year, and I'm sure not all those guys are in the inner order, but uh, I suspect this group is pretty high up since it is a smaller group. It's not like the CFR. It's not like the Pilgrim Society, which is a little bit smaller than the CFR, but uh, it's not a huge group like these others, and I would think that it, that would mean that it would be a little bit more important than some of the other groups, if they are even rated higher than others. Who knows how this circle within circles actually operates? Well, the way I've had to go about it is uh, organizations like this don't print manifestos. They don't publish uh, manifestos or um, operation schedules. So what I've had to do is look at the history, the biographies of the leading members of the order and reconstruct their career and see if there's a common pattern in their careers. I have to reconstruct their objectives. What are the objectives? In the words of one member, might is right. If you have the power, you use it to achieve your objectives. What is the objective? As you look at the histories of individual members, it can only be one thing to acquire power, to keep power, to use power for their own purposes. Tony, who are some of the key members of the order and how were these people selected? They are selected by the, what they call the next previous class. In other words, if um, you were to be initiated this year, next year would be your first year as a patriarch. That's, that year, that senior year, selects the next group from the junior class. Um, within the order, each 15, each group of 15 uh, are known as clubs. I call them cells because they're very close to the Jacobin cell, the revolutionary cells, but internally they refer to them as, as clubs. Each club has an identifying number. For example, Avril Harriman is, is a, a very influential member of the order, the son of um, Edward Harriman, the railroad magnet. Um, Harriman, was initiated in 1913. His club number is D111. All his, all the other 14 of D111 have died off. Avril Harriman is the only one left. To come to the other part of your question, who are some of the significant members? Today, two men stand out. One is Avril Harriman, who is the, I suppose, the chief financial angel of the Democratic Party. The other is Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, the Bush family is uh, quite prominent within the order. Now, if you go back in history a little, you'll find that George Bush's father, Prescott Sheldon Bush, was also a member of the order. He was a member of Brown Brothers Harriman, which is the Harriman Private Banking Company. So today you've got two men who are supposedly in politics in opposition, Bush and Harriman, actually the members of the same secret society. And Bush's father was not only a member, 
he was a partner in the what was then Harriman and Company, which later became Bone Brothers Harriman. So behind the scenes, and this is something you don't see until you investigate it, people who appear to be in opposition politically or financially or industrially or in many ways are working together. Other members might be William Buckley. Now, William Buckley became a member in 1949, but the preceding class to that was Bush, 1948. So you get Bush was amongst the 15 who selected Buckley. And Buckley's club, that 15, was the 15 that selected, for example, one of the new members for 50 was the Reverend Sloan Coffin, Jr. The Reverend Sloan Coffin, Jr. at Yale was at the core of the anti-Vietnamese um, anti-Vietnamese war disturbances on Yale campus. This is typical. You'll find that men in the same society will take opposite positions in public. So you've got William Buckley, whom I call a House Conservatism member, but so is a man, for example, called Edwin Burt, who has a string of communist affiliations, which is about that long. And we'll get into this later. The method they use is that of the Hegelian dialectic. Thesis played against antithesis leads to a synthesis. In other words, for Hegel, for history to make progress, you have to have conflict. And when you look at the key people in the order, you will find that they generate conflict. So Bush and Harriman politically are conflicting. Um, Coffin and Buckley, although part of the same order, are in public conflicting with one another because conflict leads to the new synthesis. Other prominent members, one of the most prominent was Howard William Taft, the only man to be both president and chief justice of the United States. The Taft family founded the order in the United States. There have been eight members, eight Taft family members within the order. Uh, Taft was uh, probably the most prominent member around the turn of the century, 1910, 1920, uh, Stimson, who was secretary of war under Taft, then secretary of state under Hoover, secretary of war under Roosevelt, uh, in other words, um, at that level, politics disappears and people often wonder why does a Democrat join a Republican administration? If you check back, you find often it's not as a member of the order. So key people would be people like Taft, uh, Stimson, Archibald MacLeish, who wrote the Constitution for UNESCO, also librarian of Congress, uh, the Bush family, the Walker family. And above all today, if there's a godfather in the order, it's Avril Harriman. Well, Tony, mm -hmm. here we have an elected representative in our government who could become the occupant of the highest office in the land, who unbeknownst to those who have elected him, belongs to a secret society with purposes and goals antithetical to those of the United States. Mm -hmm. Now exactly what causes does the order espouse and why are these divergent to those of our founding fathers? Well. The causes one can only deduce at this point from the operations of these men as individuals and working together. They want to acquire power above all. Power Political to do power. What? As you look at their actions, the political power is to bring about a new world order, which is a one world. But they use the Hegelian techniques, and we know enough about Hegel to know that not only does this mean the dialectic process, the creation of conflict, but it also means that individuals such as you and I, or anybody watching this program, will be cogs in the state, that we have no individual rights. Individual rights for Hegel come about through obedience to the state. 
Uh, we see it in the educational process, which we'll probably talk about later, that we have adopted what I call a Hegelian system of education, which is not to bring out your innate talents, but to prepare you to be an individual cog in the state. A couple other notables, if this information is correct, I'll just mention briefly. Douglas Preston Woodlock, U.S. federal judge. Uh, Charles Herbert Levin, an actor. Christopher Taylor Buckley, author, editor, and chief speechwriter for Vice President George H.W. Bush under Reagan. Uh, Robert Curtis Brown, American television and stage actor. This one's interesting. Uh, Robert William Kagan, neoconservative writer. And I believe that Kagan of course, was the guy who started PNAC, Project for a New American Century, and his wife is Victoria Newland, who said F the EU. She's kind of famous for that, and not that I mind that, but she's a really bad lady, and she's working for the Biden administration as we speak. She's been a member of numerous, numerous think tanks, warmonger think tanks, and uh, she is a member of the German Council on Foreign Relations right now, and Robert was on the membership roster of the Council on Foreign Relations, I believe, as as recent as last year, but I don't think he's on there right now, which doesn't always mean that they are not a member any longer. I think that they can have that taken off if they ask, but there's also lifetime members appointed, and I don't believe he's been one of those as of yet, but we'll keep our eyes on that. Now, one thing I should probably mention that Anthony C. Sutton talks about, and I don't know if he was the first, prob probably wasn't, but he talks about the Hegelian dialectic. And so a lot of people in the conspiracy community, the alternative media community, are familiar with that, and they also talk about it. But he was talking about it way back in the early 80s, and he really talks a lot in this book, America's Secret Establishment, the introduction of the Order of the Skull and Bones, about the right and left paradigm. He says it's a control device, and I believe so too. Uh, for Hegelians, talking about George Hegel, who came up with the Hegelian dialectic, the state is almighty and seen as the march of God on earth. Indeed, it is a state religion. Of course, we can see that the people who lean that way, they very much worship the state. And there's no question about that. I mean, of course, they would say, of course, I don't. They think that all goodness comes from the state, and they'll tell you that people are the government. Of course, we know that's ridiculous, but they really believe that kind of thing, and it makes them feel good because it gives them hope. No matter how bad the state is, no matter how much money we waste, or it wastes, excuse me, uh, we're over $30 trillion in debt, by the way. I think we just hit $30 trillion this morning. So we uh, have their leadership from years and years and years combined to thank for that. And you can look at the Founding Fathers, no matter what you think of them, they had some great quotes on debt and how it is a huge, huge enemy of free people everywhere and to be avoided at all costs. And of course, our leaders, both left and right, have racked up public debt for so long, and it's so obvious that they do not care about the consequences. The can just keeps getting kicked down the road, 
And I think it's partially on purpose because eventually it's all going to come down to we owe so much debt that we cannot possibly repay it and we're going to be owned. And I think we already are to a large degree by the money lenders and the people that we owe the money to. Progress in the Hegelian state is through contrived conflict. The clash of opposites makes for progress. If you can control the opposites, you dominate the nature of the outcome. We trace the extraordinary skull and bones influence in a major Hegelian conflict, Nazism versus Communism. Skull and bones members were in the dominant decision-making positions. Bush, Harriman, Stimson, Lovett, and so on. All bonesmen and instrumental in guiding the conflict through the use of right and left. They financed and encouraged the growths of both philosophies and controlled the outcome to a significant extent. This was aided by the reductionist division in science, the opposite of historical wholeness. By dividing science and learning into a narrower and narrower segment, it became easier to control the whole through the parts. In education, the Dewey system was initiated and promoted by Skull and Bones members. Dewey was an ardent statist and a believer in the Hegelian idea that the child exists to be trained to serve the state. This requires suppression of individualist tendencies and a careful spoon-feeding of approved knowledge. This dumbing down of American education is not easily apparent unless you have studied in both foreign and domestic U.S. universities. Then, the contrast becomes crystal clear. This dumbing down is now receiving attention. Then he mentions two books in there, The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America by Charlotte Thompson Isabert and The Dumbing Down of America by John Taylor Gatto. The Isabert book, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, but uh, that's pretty hard to find. That book I've seen for like $2,000 online before. I was finally able to find a PDF of it, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I'll probably end up doing another episode, or maybe two, who knows, because the education system is so wrought with fraud, corruption, and it's so apparent that there was a long-held plan to change the entire country through education by molding the minds of the youth. While we're talking about education here, having to do with the order of the skull and bones, um, on the next page, I think it's important, we talk about Daniel Coit Gilman, and he becomes the president of Johns Hopkins, and Johns Hopkins has been in the hot seat because of COVID, and of course, they were in charge of event 201, I believe, or one of the main ones, as well as the Gates Foundation. And Johns Hopkins has a lot to do with medicine and healthcare. So this Gilman, this Daniel Gilman, was appointed as president of John Hopkins. He was, of course, a member of the Skull and Bones. Johns Hopkins, a wealthy Baltimore merchant, left his fortune to establish a university for graduate education, the first in the United States along German lines, and a medical school. Hopkins trustees were all friends who lived in Baltimore. How then did they come to select Daniel Coit Gilman as president of the new university? In 1874, the trustees invited three university presidents to come to Baltimore and advise on the choice of president. 
These were Charles W. Elliott of Harvard, Andrew Dixon White of Cornell, and James B. Angle of Michigan. Only Andrew Dixon White was in the order. After meeting independently with each of these presidents, half a dozen of the trustees toured several American universities in search of further information, and Andrew D. White accompanied the tour. The result was, in the words of James Angle, and now I have this remarkable statement to make to you, that without the least conference between us three, we all wrote letters telling them how the one man was Daniel C. Gilman of California. Sutton says, The truth is that Gilman not only knew what was going on in Baltimore, but was in communication with Andrew White on the Baltimore scheme, as they called it. In a letter dated April 5, 1874, Gilman wrote as follows to Andrew D. White. I could not conclude on any new proposition without conferring upon it with some of my family friends, and I have not felt at liberty to do so. I confess that the Baltimore scheme has oft-times suggested itself to me, but I have no personal relations in that quarter. Here's the interesting point. The board appointed by Johns Hopkins to found a university did not even meet to adopt its bylaws and appoint committees until four weeks before this letter, dated March 7, 1874. Yet Gilliman tells us the Baltimore scheme has oft-times suggested itself to me. In brief, Gilman knew what had been happening over in Baltimore before his name had been presented to the trustees. Gilman became the first president of Johns Hopkins University and quickly set to work. Johns Hopkins had willed substantial amounts for both university and medical schools. Dr. William H. Welch, a fellow member of the order, was brought in by Gilman to head up the Hopkins Medical School. Welch was president of the board of directors of the Rockefeller Institute of the Medical Research for nearly 25 years. Now Sutton talks about how these guys basically took over Yale. He says in 1886, Timothy Dwight of the order had taken over from the last of Yale's clerical presidents, Noah Porter. Never again was Yale to get too far from the order. Dwight was followed by another member, Arthur T. Hadley. Andrew Dixon White was secure as president of Cornell and alternated as U.S. ambassador to Germany. While in Berlin, White acted as a recruiting agent for the order. Not only G. Stanley Hall came into his net, but also Richard T. Eli, founder of the American Economic Association. Daniel Gilman, as we noted in the last memorandum, was president of Johns Hopkins and used that base to introduce Wundtian psychology into U.S. education. After retirement from Johns Hopkins, Gilman became the first president of the Carnegie Institution of Washington, D.C. Yeah, he just goes on and on about uh, these guys infiltrating higher ed, and it's pretty amazing. Now, looking through some of the names on the order of Skull and Bones, we see Professor of Philosophy, University of Chicago, and Cornell University, that's Edwin A. Burt. We see Professor of Greek and Minister to Greece, Eben Alexander. We see Professor of Physics at Cornell and Brown University, Eli Whitney Blake. We see Francis J. Cook, New England Conservatory of Music. We see Professor of Greek, Center College, Jacob Cooper, President 
of Western Reserve University, Carol Cutler, Professor of Greek, Olivert College, and President, Joseph L. Daniels, Professor of Greek at Beloit College, Joseph Emerson. I mean, it just goes on and on and on with the professors and uh, people that have worked in universities. Chancellor of Washington University, Joseph G. Hoyt, Secretary of the State Board of Education, Charles D. Hine. I mean, it goes on and on. So these guys very much took over education and built the education system. And so that is another point that I didn't cover in the origins of the American education system. Uh, I didn't really go too much into detail on higher ed. And these guys, the Order of Skull and Bones, had men, their emissaries, in prominent positions at so many universities. And I don't know if that's the case today, but I do know that the Council on Foreign Relations famously has many deans amongst their membership and many people who work at colleges. He goes into more detail about how close the order was with John Dewey. He says, in other words, for Dewey, man has no individual rights. Man exists only to serve the state. And we did go over that in our Origins of Education episode. This is directly contradictory to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution with the preamble, we the people. They then go on to define the rights of the state, which are always subordinate and subject to the will of we the people. This, of course, is why modern educationists have great difficulty in introducing the Constitution into schoolwork. Their ideas follow Hegel and Dewey and indirectly the objectives of the order. For example, an attempt should be made to redress the present overemphasis on individualism in current programs. Students need to develop a sense of community and collective identity. That's from the Educational Leadership of May 1982, William B. Stanley. Uh, he was the assistant professor of the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at Louisiana State University. But, uh, you know, yes, uh, individualism is seen as evil. That reflects the attitude of the media, which are controlled by the corporatists. Many of these corporatists who think like the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and the Ford Foundations and the different ones. And so they are a form of collectivism in themselves. And then, of course, you figure in the state, which is a great form of collectivism. So that is what the individual is up against these well-organized groups that work together. And uh, I just want to include this quote here from Self-Knowledge and Social Action by Obadiah Silas Harris. He was the Associate Professor of Education, Management, and Development in New Mexico State University in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Now check out, this is an educator, and check out what he said in this book. The Cosmic Soul the whole human race, is going to evolve an efficient, effective soul of its own, the cosmic soul of the race. That is the future of human evolution. As a result of the emergence of the universal soul, there will be a great unification of the entire human race, ushering into existence a new era, a new dawn of unique world power. It's just amazing that these educators 
and I could I could see it once I started getting into kind of studying the New Age stuff and then looking into the progressive kind of ideas of the late 1800s, early 1900s. But it's just amazing the similarities of the New Age movement and a lot of these people in the education system and their philosophies. And so many of the secret societies have that same collectivist universalism type of attitude. And of course, we talked about in the past on the show, you know, there's a hippy dippy attitude where they mean well, but it always comes back to who's actually going to control this one world, you know, and uh, I think we know who's going to control it. People like Swab, people like these other globalists that run these NGOs that we talk about all the time. Yes, Sutton also dedicates an entire page with small writing of all the important Skull and Bones appointees to Yale over the years, from professors of mathematics to Yale's Divinity School to professor of history, economic history, the secretary of Yale, president of Yale, professor of economics, trustee of Sheffield Scientific School, professor of English, deans, professors of German, English, Latin. It just uh, goes on and on, continues. Uh, Like I said, it's an entire page, and there's quite a bit in his book, which I suggest you find and read, that kind of explains how they basically took over Yale. And it is extremely influential, as I don't have to tell you guys, in higher education and has produced many leaders in business and the public sector as well. All right, guys, this has been a very comprehensive episode, and I really appreciate you sticking around and and bearing with me. Uh, I had so much information that I was encountering, and you may notice the different microphone sounds at different times, but there was really no way to get around that because I did record on different days because I was consulting different books, different sources. It's just too much information to do all at once. I'm not that good. I wish I was. So I apologize. You know, you might not change any settings on your mic or your amp, but you come back in and you might be closer to the mic than you were before. You may be speaking in a different cadence than you were before, so there's just no way to keep that consistent, perfect sound that I know of. I experienced that when I used to record my own music. And by the way, I do have a new song coming out, or actually a remixed song. that I don't know if any of you guys have ever heard, but my brother's working on that. He's got a little studio, and he's made this awesome mix of one of my songs called Hollywood is Burning. So I look forward to bringing that to you, as well as a few other songs in the near future. But uh, getting back to this episode, I wanted to tie up some loose ends here. And uh, one of the things I wanted to mention was that Sutton points out that, hey, look, this is not an American society per se. It is a foreign secret society, and it holds a lot of sway and has held a lot of sway over the years, as we've kind of learned. There's been lots and lots of intermarriage between members of the Skull and Bones and daughters of members of the Skull and Bones and different things like that over the years, kind of like the Federal Reserve. And speaking of, the very first president of the Federal Reserve was, you guessed it, a Skull and Bones member. Yes, his name was 
Pierre J. And another of his friends in the Federal Reserve was none other than Senator Carter Glass of Virginia, who was a 33rd degree Mason of the Scottish Rite. All right, guys, I guess that finishes up part one of the History of the Skull and Bone Society. Thank you once again for taking the time to listen. I just ask that you please share the show if you get a chance. And also, maybe if you get time, you can rate the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you are listening to it on. I want to thank Alternate Current Radio, Spore, Hesher, and Ruckus, and the whole Boiler Room crew for supporting me and putting up my shows on there and hanging out with me. I want to thank Fringe Radio Network for doing the same, so check them out as well. Also, I want to thank John Brisson from We've Read the Documents. Please check out his fine YouTube channel. He posts some of my shows on there. So thank you very much. Thanks to all my friends, all the people that I've hung out with and done shows with, and I just really appreciate it. I want to thank my fine patrons who have helped me, kind of supported me. You know, I have a wife, three kids, a dog, two cats, a house, a small business to take care of, and now my son is at home two days a week in which I have to homeschool him. So things just keep getting busier and busier on my end, and I'm also having to travel one to two days a week for our small business. So it's so hard to, to read and to you know jot down all this information and get all this stuff together to make these shows, but I'm doing my very best to keep it going. I don't always get it up as soon as I want, but that's just part of it. And with Patreon, I already had the $5 a month level, and that's the Society of the Cryptic Savants. There, I try to give you the show early before I put it in the regular feed, plus I'll put extra posts on there that I usually don't put on other platforms. But I've added two other tiers at the request of one of the listeners, or the suggestion anyway, and that is the co-conspirator level, which is $15 a month. And if you join that, I'll give you exclusive videos and posts, one to two extra shows a month, plus a shout out for your business or whatever else you'd like me to promote, as long as as it's within reason and not something I'm against, of course. And then I've added the producer level, which is $200 per month. I know that sounds like a lot, but the listener was the one that said, you need to do this. I needed a microphone, and the listener wanted to help out, and he said, you know, start this 200 per month producer level, and I'll help you. And he did. Thank you so much to the anonymous producer for helping me out. Now, what you would get with the producer level, if you'd like to join, is you'll get the one to two extra shows a month. I'll do the shout out to your business or website or whatever you'd like, but also I will do a Zoom or... Skype or StreamYard show with you one hour once a month, and we can talk about whatever you'd like, you know, whatever things that you want to talk about that maybe I wouldn't normally talk about on the show or whatever. We live in such a time of censorship that there are things that you can talk about in private that you can't really do a show about without getting completely and totally deleted. So that's what you would get there. And also with the producer level, and I took this from the No Agenda show, of course, but I decided, you know what, <clears throat> this would be a way to kind of, for me to give back if somebody wants to join that level. And 
I would be happy to vouch for you if you want to put in your LinkedIn profile, Twitter profile, Facebook profile, that you produce the oddcast. You are a producer of a show that's ongoing with over 100 episodes. So I'll even be your job reference. If you want to give me as a reference, I'd be happy to talk to anyone about you. So that's what you would get with the producer level. And I thank you guys very much. If you're interested in joining any of the levels just to help out, it is patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. I hope you're having a wonderful day night, whatever time it is when you're listening to this. And I can't wait to bring you more shows down the road. I've got another show that's almost finished editing that will be ready to go in a couple of days. So look forward to giving that to you guys. I thank you so much once again. I want to say cheers and blessings to you. And remember, their order is not our order. (laughs) 